everyone, welcome to episode 79 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So this week we've got a special guest on board uh, for the interview. It's John Johansson again from the Ubuntu Security team. And he's going to be discussing with Joe the recent announcement from Intel about their uh, control flow enforcement technology uh, being enabled for their upcoming Tiger Lake uh, CPU range and kind of, I guess, what will go into that um, in Ubuntu, plus also what kind of things it uh, defends against and protects against, and I guess some of the history as well uh, in terms of memory corruption vulnerabilities and the like. That's a really good discussion, uh, so make sure you stick around for that. But first, as always, I'll do the usual roundup of security fixes from the past week. So this week, there were 24 unique CVEs that were addressed by the team. Up first, we had an update for SQLite. Uh, this is the, I guess, low uh, memory, low footprint uh, SQL database, uh, usually used in a lot of embedded contexts or you know, embedded into other applications as well. Uh, there were nine different CVEs that were fixed for this for uh, the Ubuntu releases 16.04, 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support and the interim 19.10 release. Uh, being written in C, this has the usual, I guess, raft of the kind of vulnerabilities that we see in this type of application. Things like a fix for a null pointedy reference uh, due to a, uh, on response to a crafted query. Uh, there was a use after free, an out of bounds read. Uh, there was an integer overflow as well when printing high precision floating point numbers. And then a bunch of other minor issues that were uh, fixed that uh, could be triggered when handling crafted uh, SQLite database files. And then up next, we had a regression update uh, for Intel Microcode. So you may recall from last week's episode, I was talking about an Intel Microcode update that we did there uh, to enable support for this uh, SRBDS mitigation uh, from Intel, the, their latest uh, side channel uh, attack mitigation that they deployed via Microcode. And uh, unfortunately for some processes, uh, this new Microcode update uh, would cause them to fail to boot. Uh, yeah, not a great, um, not a great thing to have happen to you. Uh, so the, the way the Intel microcode works is that uh, for each separate kind of processor type, there's a different microcode file, and each type is identified by the combination of its CPU family, the model, and the stepping. And this is actually the kind of stuff that you can easily see yourself for your own processor in uh, proc CPU info, the file. So if you cat slash proc slash CPU info, you will see that. And so say for my CPU, it says uh, that the CPU family is number six, the model is 142, and the stepping is 10. And so what we do is we then turn that into hex encoded. So that would be uh, 068E0A in my case. And so then there's a particular microcode file um, that is you know, actually named by that in the, uh, the upstream source, the Intel release, uh, that is for say my processor family. And the idea is that you know, for various other ones, they have their own. And unfortunately, uh, a particular uh, microcode update for or a microcode for the Skylake um, processor type, uh, 064E03, uh, that would cause that to fail to boot, as I said. So um, Intel have since reverted this in their own upstream repo. And so we were sort of on the front foot. And as soon as we saw reports of this, we decided to uh, revert it ourselves. Uh, thanks in particular to Steve Beatty for handling that, uh, doing the heavy lifting on that one. So yeah, that has been reverted. So if you were unfortunately affected by that and not able to boot, you are now able to boot your machine again, which I'm sure is a, a relief. Uh, we then had an update for FWAPD or the firmware update daemon. Um, this is used for uh, doing like UEFI firmware updates and, and whatnot for your machine. Uh, it's very cool, uh, developed uh, actually out of Red Hat by Richard Hughes. Uh, who also developed things like uh, GNOME software and, and other sorts of things as well. That was the old package kit. But anyway, I digress. Uh, so yeah, this essentially allows you to do firmware updates without, say, having to boot back into Windows or something like that if you are dual booting. 
uh, Linux has entered the 21st century. Anyway, so um, you have on your machine this WAPD daemon that's sitting there and it can you know, it knows how to apply firmware updates. In particular, that means kind of sticking them somewhere on the EFI partition and setting things up so that at next boot, the you know your, essentially your BIOS will go and actually apply the firmware update. Uh, and it downloads them from a thing called the Linux Vendor Firmware Service, LVFS. Again, something that Richard set up and maintains. Um, and it checks things like signatures on them to make sure that you know you're not getting some you know crafted file or whatnot, and someone can't just you know backdoor your uh, your BIOS essentially. And it does that over HTTPS, which is good. But unfortunately, when it checks the signatures, uh, it could um, have been tricked into essentially missing the signature verification if. Uh, it was crafted in the firmware update file was crafted in a particular way. And as I said, that's not normally a problem because you know, LVFS is trusted and you access it over HTTPS. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, the, the same uh, researcher that found this issue also found uh, a way to potentially have compromised LBFS. They didn't, thankfully. Uh, they reported it to Richard and it was fixed within 24 hours. But the way um, that FWAPD works is it could contact multiple um, kind of essential backends. And one of them was managed in S3, Amazon S3. And uh, after a while, Richard, you know, stopped using that for uh, the back end, but uh, the FWAPD would still potentially contact it. And then, so this researcher, Justin Stephen, uh, after the, you know, Richard had deleted it, he went and recreated that bucket in his own, uh, you know, his own account and then could have put anything there. And so I guess the combination of that dangling S3 bucket plus this ability to bypass signature verification could have meant that, you know, we could have all had our biases back to it. But, uh, but thankfully, uh, Justin Stephen is a, uh, you know, a, a good uh, responsible hacker and reported this upstream. And these have both now been fixed. So yeah, that has been fixed for FWAPD in uh, Ubuntu releases 16.04, 18.04, 20.04 long-term support, and 19.10. Uh, we then had an update for AppPort in uh, Trusty or 14.04 extended security maintenance. So if you are uh, a customer for that, you would have got that. Um, this is for a couple of vulnerabilities that I mentioned back in episode 70. Uh, libxif was also updated. Uh, I, I mentioned this oh, probably about six or eight weeks ago, I think. We did an update for libxif, and now we've done another one. Again, uh, another library written in C, handling you know reasonably complex uh, formats. We see the same kind of vulnerabilities. So there was a use after free due to some uninitialized memory that needed to just be uh, memset to zero. Uh, there was various buffer overreads. Uh, there was an inch overflow. Uh, as I say, the usual sort of you know best of breed vulnerabilities for this kind of thing. Uh, so that was for LibXIF in uh, not just all of our recent supported releases, but both of our extended security maintenance as well. So that's 12.04 and 14.04 extended security maintenance, and 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04 long-term support, and 19.10. Uh, as a side note, if you are an Ubuntu 19.10 user, that will be going end of life uh, within a few months. So I urge you to upgrade to Ubuntu 20.04 LTS, but we'll talk about that more, uh, I guess, in a few weeks when that does finally happen. Next up, there was an update for libNSS or NSS, the crypto library that is developed by Mozilla and in particular is kind of embedded into Firefox. Uh, the main uh, fix for this was due to a possible timing side channel attack during uh, DSA key generation. Uh, so the idea here of a timing side channel attack against key generation is that you can measure uh, the time various uh, cryptographic operations take, particularly when generating the key in this case. And because they take a different amount of time depending on what the actual key itself is, uh, you can measure, you can essentially infer what the key is as a result of the time that's taken as an attacker. Uh, so yeah, that was fixed to make sure it's constant time. 
And uh, up last, we had an update for Dbus. Again, this was for uh, Ubuntu releases 12.04 and 14.04 extended security maintenance, 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04 long-term support, and Ubuntu 19.10. So uh, Dbus is the daemon that uh, was originally developed by the GNOME folks, uh, but it's now used a lot across the um, Linux desktop and uh, allows to you know have the, kind of this client-server model and you can call methods on, you know, on a server and things like that. Uh, very cool. And one of the things you can do nicely is pass around file descriptors. So a client can send a message with a bunch of file descriptors. This then gets uh, handled by the Dbus daemon and then handed off to you know whatever is actually providing that service. Uh, the daemon will then validate that message that only contains you know the maximum number of file descriptors before it does. But uh, and if it's too many, it will reject it. But unfortunately, the daemon failed to close those file descriptors. So they've essentially been passed to it via the Unix socket. Uh, they're open within the Dbus daemon. It doesn't close them. And so you can keep sending more and more of these messages. And eventually, it will accumulate uh, you know, so many open file descriptors that it cannot open anymore itself. It will hit the maximum limit for its process. And so then you know, other client apps that want to use Dbus won't be able to connect to it. Uh, so it's a denial of service, essentially, that could be triggered from a local unprivileged user against the Dbus daemon. And so that was fixed for Dbus to simply close those file descriptors uh, on the error path. And that's it for security updates. Okay, so as I mentioned at the start of this week's episode, uh, Joe sat down with John Johansson from the Ubuntu security team uh, to have a nice in-depth discussion about this recent announcement from Intel about their control flow enforcement technology, or CET, and uh, I guess some of the impact that that will have in Ubuntu, but also uh, kind of you know, some background on uh, memory corruption vulnerabilities and the like. Hey, JJ, how are you doing this week? Okay, how are you? I am great. And so this week we have um, John Johansson from the Ubuntu security team. And John is our lead on everything AppArmor. That might not sound uh, exactly like what we're talking about today being Intel CET. But since AppArmor touches, well, what, everything, especially the kernel, we figured we'd go right to somebody authoritative to talk about how um, Intel uh, announced... um, CET, which is Control Flow Enforcement Technology for the new Tiger Lake CPUs, and how that's supposed to stop uh, a few types of malware attacks. So, um, JJ, tell us in a nutshell, um, what does CET do? So, CET is a mitigation against uh, return-oriented programming and jump-oriented call-oriented programming. Uh, So, these are techniques that were developed uh, several years ago to get around uh, stack protections and uh, data execution protections, no X, no NX, whatever uh, protections that were introduced. So uh, in a regular stack smashing attack, you just you just run back up the stack and you overwrite the um, the return pointer and and you and you put your own code on the stack, and then when the function returns, it returns into your code. Uh, and no NX uh, got rid of the ability to work with that, uh, make the stack non-executable. Um, and so return-oriented programming was developed where you can find gadgets in memory, and gadgets are just little two, three, five X uh, step, you know, in assembly instructions in, in memory that already exist that you can leverage to put together a code yourself so you don't have to actually have your own code you can 
cobble together code from other code in in the computer's memory already. Um, it sounds really complicated in some ways it is, but there's compilers that can do this for you. And so what you would get is with return-oriented programming is you would then just ha have to overwrite the return pointer and then you would point it at somewhere in memory that you wanted some instructions to do and you could chain these and run an application that way. You could take or not your, your shell code essentially, it's your shell code. Um, Jump-oriented programming is kind of the same idea, except for you're attacking jump tables in the heap. Um, so, so if if you um, if we see so the compiler would have to use this too. So I think right now, like with the the with the ROP and JOP, um, return-oriented programming and the jump-oriented programming, we uh, with with CET you'll add um, end branch to the end of your sort of code block, right? And is that what GCC-FS stat clash protection does too? So um, stat clash is a, a different class. Uh, so the GCC one for uh, this is uh, FCF protection. Okay, so stat clash is kind of, we, we mentioned the, the stack, right, uh, previously. So what stat clash did is when you made the stack, uh, made certain stack protections like you put a canary at the end of your stack or a guard page. What stack clash was is you could uh, use certain functions to write way past the end of the stack and skip the guard page. Uh, so that was a different class of attack that they're protecting against there. Um, so with CET, it actually does two things. So we need to split it. So there's the forward edge and the reverse or return edge. So um, how they handle return edge is they have a shadow stack. And so this is the easiest part to implement. Uh, it's mostly transparent. It, it's transparent to most parts of the program. And so all that is is you get a second a second stack and it's it's hidden from regular use. It's protected by the hardware, which gets rid of the problems for say like Microsoft when they did a shadow stack with CFG. Uh, they tried to randomize the stack location to hide it, but it was possible to find it. Um, and then you could attack it. Uh, so there's a shadow stack and it only contains return addresses. So when you push a return, when you make a function call, it pushes a return address onto the stack. It also pushes it onto the shadow stack. And so then this, it is compared against on when you, when you have a return. And so if there's a change on the stack versus what's on the shadow stack, then that execution is killed. It throws an exception. Okay. Um, and there, there's, there's things you have to deal with, uh, exception handlers, set jump, long jump, trampoline, stuff like that. So some code can't deal with it. There has to be some exceptions, uh, fine details. The other end is the forward edge that you already mentioned, where you add the new function to the, the beginning of every function could be a target of a jump. Now, these are specific jumps, not hard-coded jumps in the code. So if you have a code that says, jump to this address, um, this is not what we're worried about. We're doing indirect jumps. So where you have a, a function pointer stored in memory or, you know, so C++ method call tables type thing, um, or on the stack, uh, some you know that could be passed as a parameter of function or something of the sort. Those are the type of function calls we need to stick this 
uh, special instruction at. And so for older process processors in set, that instruction works out to be a NOP. So it doesn't get executed, it just runs. And so the compiler needs to go through and it needs to insert these this instruction at the start of every uh, indirect branch that's possible in the program. And so what happens is when you're, you take an indirect branch, if the processor doesn't see this instruction as the first instruction, it throws a, uh, an exception and stops execution. Very cool. So, um, and this, can you, uh, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here because I didn't give you much time to prepare. So I'm going to ask, can you off the top of your head think of a recent vulnerability that CET would protect against? It doesn't have to be Linux specific either. Uh, um, <laughs> not off the top of my head. I know there are some. <laughs> I just can't think of what they are That's off the a, top of my head. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll throw it in the, in the, in the liner notes for the, um, for the, yes, uh, for the can, podcast. We can, we, we certainly, I, we'll, we'll make sure there's a whole section of references for the liner notes. Um, um, do you, so you mentioned the stack a few times. And when I started out in security, one of the first things I read was uh, smashing the stack for fun and profit by ALF1. Do you think that's still um, still relevant? Sure. I mean, return to, so return-oriented program is still a form of stack smashing attack. Um, and uh, we've had all kinds of variations on it. It, it, it. That's just started a whole chain of it. Uh, cer certainly, you know, the simplistic stack smashing is not possible anymore with all the protections. But, I mean, we're still running into these stack smashing attacks. Uh, in 2014, I think it was, we had the SIG return, which uh, is, a, is another escalation on stack smashing attacks. So, you know, once you start getting mitigations for, like, uh, say L ASLR, randomizing your memory layout, trying to mitigate against return-oriented programming somewhat, make it harder to attack. Then you had like the the SIG return. So that attack, you know, exploited the fact that the signal call context structure uh, could be put on the stack, and then you could attack that and use SIG return. As a, as a form of a attack again to, to break and make it a lot easier. So it's, it's the same thing over and over again we're seeing mm -hmm. so far on a lot of these attacks. And so, yeah, I think it's very, very relevant. And when you, when you read that one, because that one's nice and it's a nice straightforward attack and it's mm -hmm. a lot easier to understand than say some of the ROP gadgets and constructs that they're working through. Um, it's a good base to start from and you, you could follow on and just see the escalation just step by step over the years. It's, it's real cool. Very cool. So to get this to work, well, we need to, uh, I was trying to get it to work, but to get the benefits of this, well, we need to, um, well, obviously I think we'll need to create new kernels, but will we have to have a different kernel, whether or not you're using a CET enabled uh, processor or not, or would you detect it on boot, whether or not that's enabled and then. React? So, um, uh, we, we need to ro roll out set to make it work properly, um, basically everywhere. So one of the things is set needs support in the compiler. It needs support in the operating system. It needs support in the loaders. So like in glibc, the, the, mm -hmm. the very early execution of a program, the loader, it, we need that. 
Um, we need support in bin utils. I mean, everywhere. Um, uh, so they all serve different purposes, right? So the kernel needs to know how to handle it, the exceptions. It needs to be able to set up uh, shadow stacks for applications. Um, and the, the compiler has to know how to and where to insert the special instruction that's going into the jump targets. Um, Things like GCC also have to be able to generate exceptions that can deal with set code because like we said before that that's one of the places where you have to be handle things specially or set jump and long jump. Um, then uh, glibc has to have stuff around it and because it was doing things um, and its loader has to be aware of, of set. Uh, and we also have to tag all the code with set because you can't just have, say, um, a set program and have it call out to a, a library that doesn't use set because what happens then is that looks like it jumping to a location that um, it shouldn't be, and so it gets killed. So if you have a co some code that's compiled with set and then you, you link to a library that isn't, uh, it won't work. So we need to have the entire operating system compiled with set support. Okay, so that just once again, so often on this call, I always kind of say, well, security is, security is pretty easy. You just keep layering in a small thing here, a small thing there, but large changes like this, not always so easy, but this sounds like it'll have a bunch of mitigations for, for malware. And that's, it's very important because, you know, if you right. think all security people eventually end up reading Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And uh, I think, what does he say that you always want to frustrate your attacker? Um, and then something about having the sun in their eyes at the start of a battle. But I don't think that really works with computers because you can just turn the light off. Um, but OK, um, JJ, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk uh, with me today and be on the podcast. Um, have a great, great being here. Yeah, awesome, man. Thanks. And thanks in particular to John Johansson for uh, doing the interview with Joe this week. And thanks also to you, Joe, uh, for that as well. All right. So that takes us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, as usual, if you want to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at security.ubuntu.com. Uh, you can also find us on the Freenode IRC network in the Ubuntu Harden channel. We do have the security section on discourse.ubuntu.com. And finally, you can find us on Twitter at Ubuntu underscore sec. Okay, so thanks everyone for listening again for another week. Uh, remember, until next week, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.